This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Buddy. Boy, oh boy, I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, my brother-in-law got married this weekend and it was very lovely and it was at the same place that Susanna and I got married. Not weird at all, I'm so sure. So it was like a bizarre wedding. Ooh, did everyone have to wear fake mustaches? Uh, I did, but not Ooh. everyone else did. That was a hipster thing, not a And the a dance floor was thing. oriented differently. It was on the other side of the room. That's confusing. Mm-hmm. Which way do you start when you do the electric slide? That way. I did not. I, they didn't do the electric slide. They had a live band. I haven't been to a wedding with a live band in a while. I think you and I have been to one together. Not have at, we? Yeah, we have. Which one? I think it was Shelley's. Had a band. Uh, yeah, I guess it but did. But they didn't have like a knockdown, drag out dance party. No, no, no. Either. Like this band was playing like the greatest hits of 1971 to 1979 all night and all everybody bad. was into it. No, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying like that's the very specific range that this wedding band played. So that's your state of being. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. So as you could tell, Andrew just spent a lot of time in a car He's a little punchy. Well, here's the other thing is I read this book, Everything's Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Four. <laughs> uh-huh. And man, I got feelings about it. Great. Let me tell so, you, and here's where the wedding wait. factors into it. We're <laughs> okay. gonna talk about Jonathan Safran Four in a minute. But so I okay, so we got some downtime, got a couple of hours of downtime. All the ladies are off getting their nails did, their hair did. I'm sitting in the hotel lobby, like chilling with a couple members of the family. Mm-hmm. I'm just like reading and Susanna's aunt asked me, what are you reading? And I say, everything's illuminated by Jonathan Safran Four. And she says, you know, I read about 50 pages of that and I found it really pretentious. So I stopped. <laughs> okay. Would you like to end the podcast now? Is that what you're telling me? I'm, I'm going to end my sentence there. I'm not going to comment on that, except that by sharing it, I have effectively commented. <laughs> oh, yeah. Something about editorial is well that's a it's a it's a it's a rhetorical device like like when you say i'm not going to mention how Mm. this book is pretentious okay cicero i get Mm. yeah there (laughs) you go you're doing Uh uh-huh um i do want to say that one of our lovely patreon supporters kate (laughs) recommended this book to us uh several moons ago uh and i we've been remiss in not hitting it till now though i knew i wanted to make andrew read it because it's right in his wheelhouse, as we can tell. My wheelhouse being white guy tries hard lit. <laughs> well, and I like to challenge you on some of that. And listen, because... I am and I am complaining. Oh, you are my, a white guy who tries hard. My sometimes. my take is going to be very nuanced, just like our take on skateboard tough <laughs> and all the other books that we've read have been. So don't worry sure. about it. But like I spent nine hours in the car today and i read this book and this is just the podcast that you get so 
take it or leave it. I get. I I made it thirty pages into this podcast and I found it pretentious, so I left. Not the overdue story. I What's the think. deal with this guy Jonathan Safran for? I know he's married to Nicole Krause, or he, he was. Well, he was. Last I heard, they until were until 2014. Yeah. Which book um, of hers did we read for the show? Little quiz on. It's a book I read too. What's it called? The History of Love. Man, you're the one. I expected you to know because you're the one who read it. The History of Love. Yeah, that's there the name go. of it. <laughs> no, History Lesson, something else. Um. So he, Mr. Four, was born in 1977. He was the middlest brother of three living in Washington, D.C. Uh, his father was a lawyer who then went on to found the American Antitrust Institute. His No mother, trust. No trust here. Trust nobody. His the American Antitrust Institute. <laughs> mother was a Polish emigre um, who then uh, started like running like a PR company or something. Um, his younger brother Josh is the founder of Atlas Obscura, which I think is cool. That's a really cool website. Mm-hmm. I found like a a temple that looked like a chicken on there the other day. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, he so he grew up in the D.C. area, went to Georgetown Day School, went to Princeton. He became a writer. Uh, I don't know when exactly he became a writer, but he certainly credits a class with Joyce Carol Oates uh, for like making this his life path where she kind of told him that that's what he should be doing. She would end up being the advisor on his senior thesis, uh, which is an examination of the life of his maternal grandfather, Louis Saffron. uh, And this would go on to become the book that you read for this podcast. Andrew. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and that happened when he's what? That came out in 2002. He's like a 25-year-old wunderkind who just kind of emerges fully formed into the New York literary scene. Right. And and we talked, I think, a little bit about this in the, in the History of Love episode, but he and, he and Nicole Krauss were both like married to each other and like coming up kind of at the same time and eliciting a lot of the same... Um, praise and criticism from, sure. from critics insofar as like they were obviously talented writers who maybe were not expressing new ideas. So, okay. Yes. Um, I don't, I'll, I want to come back to that because there's a specific interview that I want to get to. Um, he then goes on to publish Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close in 2005, which is uh, an a novel written after 9-11, kind of about that, about a young boy dealing with the loss of his father. He apparently wrote a libretto for an opera. He wrote a book called Eating Animals in 2009, which is like a nonfiction book about factory farms. He's like an outspoken vegetarian who still eats meat but has a lot of feelings about it. Listen, um, dog, if, you're, <laughs> if you eat meat, you're not a vegetarian. Well... I think he has lapses. I don't know. I haven't okay, read the book. That's I don't fine, know. Fine, but like just, just saying. I am not I don't know. I'm trying to even think of something that I I don't know. It just makes me mad. You're not a vegetarian if you still eat meat. Yeah. It's fine. Like I'm not you can still eat meat. Just you can try to be a vegetarian. That. Just don't be like I'm veg- I'm an outspoken vegetarian. Hom hom hom. Let's go Arby's. Like that was me eating a roast beef sandwich. At I Arby's. would like you to hang out with this guy at an Arby's. That is a podcast I would listen to. Um, <sighs> after extremely <laughs> roast and incredibly beef, 
Sometimes I I know I shouldn't laugh as much at you as I do on the podcast, but you make it very difficult when you say things like that. <laughs> uh, he then kind of disappeared for a little while. He didn't write another work of fiction until his novel Here I Am in 2016. Um, along the way, though, he almost made an HBO show with one Ben Stiller. Oh, so does he say that he's an H- a famous HBO showmaker, too? No, because he, he almost doesn't. did it. <laughs> he uh, it was gonna be it was a show called All Talk, which was Ben Stiller was gonna play a DC area rabbi. Alan Alda was supposed to be on it. Uh, they okay. wrote eleven episodes and then they didn't make it. They do we forced... know like do we know why? I assume that's just a a te- I'm gonna put aside my feud with Jonathan Jonathan sure. for a second. <laughs> that happens on TV all the time, and I is. It is not necessarily Un- indicative of anything about the project other than like the TV business is rough. An interview with Four last year, Four claims he got cold feet and walked away from it. I don't understand how that works because he wrote 11 episodes. They could have kept making the show. Um, but you you can't even, there was no pilot. You can barely find any mention of it uh, like from Ben Stiller's side of things. All I could find was press releases about it coming into existence um, and yeah, one that's, article it, it's, mourning its loss. I guess it's odd that he walked away from it, but you know, if he, maybe you write eleven episodes and maybe by then you feel like it's not working and it's getting away from you, yeah. and and yeah, you just yeah. Um, so I, I can't I can't judge him for that. So there is there are a couple of <laughs> there are a couple there are a bunch of profiles on this guy because guess what you write two novels by the time you're thirty and a bunch of people are interested in you. Um, Man, I knew just... I was doing something wrong. <laughs> I know. A uh, couple of things that may... This all kind of works of a piece. There's a quote from him in a 2005 New York Times profile um, written by who? Deborah Solomon. Deborah oh, Solomon. Solomon. Uh, two things for me come out of this uh, interview. One is he says... He talks about like why he wrote a novel first about the Holocaust and then one about 9-11... Um, he says, I always write out of a need to read something rather than a need to write something. He wanted to write something about those events that was not politicized or commercialized, something uh, human, he said. Um, I don't know what I, I offer that because, as you said earlier, a critique that is then mentioned again in a July 2016 profile of him is that he is not perhaps as big of a reader as some other folks in his field. Okay. And now is that self-avowed or is that something that critics both imply? like okay. he, uh, the, the GQ article from 2016 titled can Jan- Jonathan Safran for make a comeback? Um, well, that's pretty, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a, that's a stance. Yep. <laughs> sure. Um, it, talks about the fact that like he can he's really enthusiastic about some of his students work in his NYU class but he can't remember any of their names or like he struggles to come up with what he's reading lately and so this jives with some of the critiques of his work that have been like he's not doing anything particularly new but he's just expressing of and he's not expressing something that's like untrue or, or doesn't have value um, but there's a at least in his late 20s there's like a Here's my t- take on a thing, and that take has been took before. Uh, uh-huh. 
So, and that that also jives with a critique from this heavily sourced BuzzFeed article I found uh, by Nice Shivani uh, called the top fifteen overrated American authors. Um, among <laughs> yeah, them, I, I found that list as well. Among them, Amy Tan and Juno Diaz, um, which I found interesting. But uh, Shivani's argu- really, I have no opinion about her overratedness or not i feel like we've liked juno the juno diaz that we've read but we've only done like the one book and that was a while well, ago i think you've got another one a few on weeks. the list yeah. yeah we're gonna do oscar wow in two weeks so we'll yeah. talk about that mm-hmm. um and then the other thing that came out of that new york times article is uh what four points to as like a defining moment of his life and part of this comes out of the the Times article is like, hey, there isn't this like elaborate backstory of pain and family suffering that brought him to being a writer. Where did this guy, what happened to him? And there's a anecdote from Forrest's childhood where he's eight. He's in a summer program chemistry class. And the teacher, in some sort of demo of how to make fireworks, like sets off a bunch of combustible materials and burns a bunch of elementary schoolers, including four. Okay. Um, he gets like second degree burns and his face, his friend's face is like almost fallen off. Um, and he has what he describes as a three year slow motion nervous breakdown that he became like very introverted and, and didn't want to go outside and had a lot of, you know, issue, you know, anxiety issues and things yeah, like that. Yeah, sure. Of um, course. Of course you would. I would think so. Yeah. And you, there are connections to be made between that kind of experience and the experience of the main character and extremely loud and incredibly close um, in terms of how he responds to that traumatic event. Uh, so a lot of Four's work has this like it's not autobiography but here's a thing that's very similar to my life um, including the the divorce at the heart of his latest novel Here I Am. Yeah um, and I think there are it would be safe to say I think that there are elements of autobiography in here but we'll yeah. we'll talk about yeah and that, uh, that actually that one of my oh, sure. one of the things i want to touch upon when i'm kind of critiquing is is what he chooses to like the events and, and things that he chooses to like the real world pegs that he chooses to hang his fiction on oh sure and, and this is a similar thing i found with Folks like Dave Eggers and and other writers that we've covered oh, yeah. again, another fave. Kind of Andrew's favorite bucket of contemporary white dudes. Um, I don't. I don't want to be like a broken record curmudgeon. <laughs> I know people like this stuff, and especially like if you're a patron and you paid for me to read this book. Like, <laughs> thank you so much for your support. But it's sometimes stuff just isn't my. Kettle of fish. Yeah, sure. Kettle of tea. Delicious kettle of tea fish. A bucket of tea. Um, The last thing of, like, note, uh, I think, for us to cover before we get into the break and then come back about the book, um, his divorce or separation from Krauss was, like, you know, main section in the New York Times news when it happened. um, I understand it to be amicable. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there were then like rumors that Natalie Portman, who's been like a longtime friend of him and both of them were like was like involved and that I don't know if that actually came to anything. But then in July 2016, uh, four and Portman released like email like a uh, it was a feature in New York Times magazine that's just a bunch of emails between them. 
uh, and it was like she had a movie coming out that was her first time directing, and his new book was coming out. Uh, you can go read it. I I also found the like, new tapes. the New York Times does New York Times does love emails. They love it, talking about they emails. Do love, oh no, I hadn't. Oh, I haven't made that connection. The hot takes I sat I found on this like publicity profile thing range from oh my god the navel gazing to don't judge them look how earnest they are so like <laughs> i think you could probably enjoy or unenjoy that profile for whatever your own it seems malleable to your own predilections which is kind of fun that's an interesting sentence yeah i'm not saying it's a bad sentence you just like said it you said a thing you said a good thing thanks a good thing, a I'm weird so thing. I'm so tired. <laughs> well, then, Andrew, let's take a quick break. <laughs> okay. We'll recharge our batteries, and we'll come back and talk about this book. Okay. <laughs> Andrew. Craig. I hear you need some energy. I need some energy. I think you could get energy if you had some food. Food is good for energy. Where can but I get food, though, at this late date? If you planned it properly, you could get it on your doorstep <laughs> from the great folks at Blue Apron. Tell me more. I can tell you that they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country and that it's their mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Um, you use Blue Apron, don't you? I do, yeah. Susanna and I have been subscribers for a long time. And um, yeah, it's really, it's great if you don't have a grocery store near you or if your grocery store has a sort of limited selection. They send you a box of food. It's got an, it's got three meals in it that serve two people each. I think they also have a four-person uh, family plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they give you exactly the amount of food that you need, including like every ingredient, like parsley and garlic and and tomatoes and whatever it is you know like canned tomatoes and and a lot of good meat and good stuff and you cook it up <laughs> you can't see but i'm like wait i'm waving my arm like you would like, if you were like shaking a saute in a pan full of something is you just shake the pan the whole time yeah i'm just there shaking the pan <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they've got and they've got easy to follow directions and recipes and you can even make the recipes again later if you want which we have done a bunch of times and it's yeah it's it's a really good way to teach yourself how to cook it's a good way to acquaint yourself with some ingredients that you might not otherwise run into so yeah we've we've been fans for a long time so andrew i just want to tell you real quick what you might be in what you might be getting this month okay hit with- me with Blue Apron. Mm-hmm. Beef teriyaki stir fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice. Baked spinach and egg flatbread with sautéed asparagus and lemon aioli. That's like Ooh. mayo, but better. Uh, three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano dipping sauce. I don't know how all those words fit together, but I'm excited about it. <laughs> it's a lot of good words. Uh, crispy salmon and roasted potato sa- potato, <laughs> potato salad. With pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. You that say, all sounds You delicious. say potato, I say p- p- potato. <laughs> uh, again, Blue Apron is affordable. You get a lot of variety. They're pretty flexible. You can customize what you're getting each week. And, and if you're going to be out of town for a wedding or something, you can just tell them, hey, I want to skip this week. And you Don't won't, send me the food. Yeah, they won't charge you. They won't send you the box. It's it. They can work around your schedule, which is really nice. 
Great. So you, the listener, can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash overdue. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So please don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash overdue. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So where would you like to begin? Have you read this book? I have not read any of this man's work. I know enough to know, as I said before, that this is loosely based on or perhaps inspired by the life of his maternal grandfather. Yes. And I know little more than that. Yeah, so um, uh, Four's mother is a child of Holocaust survivors. From Poland, yeah, okay, yeah, right. So he's he's he is connected to the story through family, and and the framing narrative is that there is a person in this book named Jonathan Safran Four, who mm. is going to Ukraine to okay. find out what happened. Like there was somebody who he suspects helped his grandfather flee. Oh, okay, and he wants to find out what happened to them. And my understanding of this is that it mirrors an actual expedition that Ford took out, but he didn't really find anything. So instead of just scrubbing it, I guess he comes up with this. He's come up with a structure where he recounts a fictionalized version of the journey itself. And then also a fictionalized account of what might've happened to this town that actually existed. This is interesting because it doesn't sound Remember we were talking about our buddy Kaz's introduction into fiction writing? This is uh, the guy who wrote Never Let Me Go. Uh And he was writing. He started trying to write about like London and people didn't buy it. And then he started writing about Japan and people were all interested. And he hadn't really experienced Japan at all. Uh He was kind of drawing on personal experience, but also making a bunch of it up. I don't know. There's just a... it, this is like different in that it, this is like a family nugget and like he did a thing, but then added more. I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's more in the vein of like we we've, we've read a bunch of authors who have traveled a lot and they've used that experience sure. traveling to inform their works and to and to make them feel more realistic and and like usually they do like even if the details aren't right, which is the case here with with in him that they and are his, not the tr- the literal truth well in in that what is true his well <laughs> in that what he has fictionalized about this real town that really got raised to the ground by nazis in world war ii okay like how he portrays the stuff that happened and also how he portrays ukrainians oh okay. has drawn a little bit of fire which we can talk about um in a little bit but to hit on plot stuff. So basically this book is two books or like two okay. stories that are stitched together with a sort of epistolary. Like he's he's drawing like one one style that he writes in is fairly straightforward, but it the gimmick is it's coming from a non-native English speaker. And I can read you a sampling of this dialogue which does get less um, I guess forced than this or like more subtle than this. Like as the book goes on, I think either because I got used to it or because he is intentionally 
winnowing it back portraying somebody like getting a little bit better at english as they go okay um the other book is a sort of magical realism thing about this town uh trackenbrod or trackenbrod trackenbrod I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce it. I, I tried to look it up, and it's just like Google was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Like when Siri's like, you're Scottish? Go away. Like yeah. Siri just doesn't know what to do. Essentially. Okay. Um, and then and then yeah, the letters are from the person who was like, who is his translator and, and guide when he went to Ukraine, like corresponding with him after the fact. Because they are like... It's in the book. It's set up as this fictional Jonathan Safran Four is sending the magical realism chapters to um, Sasha or Alex. I guess either he it, both names are used sure. like interchangeably. Um, sending those drafts to um, Alex, and then Alex is sending back these um, accounts of their journey together. Oh, okay. While okay. Four was was there. Okay. So I think one of these books and the sort of glue sections are mostly successful. Sure. Mostly. Um so I let, let's I'm gonna start with some pros and then I'll and then I'll hit Tell you me with what like how it grows out of that. <laughs> okay. So this is how the beginning of the book starts. The the chapter title is An Overture to the Commencement of a Very Rigid Journey. My legal name oh. is Alexander Perchoff, but of my many friends, but all of my many friends dub me Alex because that is a more flaccid to utter version of my legal name. Mother dubs me Alexi. Stop spleening me because I am always spleening her. If you want to know why I am always spleening her it is because I am always elsewhere with friends and disseminating so much currency and performing so many things that can spleen a mother. Father used to dub me Shapka for the fur hat I would don even in the summer month. He ceased dubbing me that because I ordered him to cease dubbing me that. It sounded boyish to me, and I have always thought of myself as very potent and generative. I have many, many girls, believe me, and they all have a different name for me. One dubs me baby, not because I am a baby, but because she attends to me. Another dubs me all night. Do you want to know why? I have a girl who dubs me currency because I disseminate so much currency around her. She licks my chops for it. I have a miniature brother who dubs me Allie. I do not dig this name very much, but I dig him very much, so okay, I permit him to dub me Allie. As for his name, it is Little Igor, but Father dubs him Clumsy One because he is always promenading into things. It was only four days previous that he made his eye blue from a mismanagement with a brick wall. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it's very, like, like, it's very, like, Tina Fey writing uh, over the top Eastern (laughs) European, Eastern European stereotype. Yeah. Like that's a hundred percent exactly what this is. And it bothered me from the jump, but it does get better. And then later on four is using this simplified and slightly wrong take on the English language to, to say things in interesting ways, at least instead of just being like, yeah, that's hello. Hello. I am. I am Alex or whatever. Yeah, There's a, there's a catch 22 there where like, uh, the, the upside, right. Is yeah. It can reveal some, some cool meanings to language and like come at some ideas from a, from a unexpected, uh, vantage point. But the downside is that you are just kind of mocking someone 
who's in whose first language is in English. Yeah, and and you're like playing it up for jokes. Like he like the Alex says whenever he's talking about somebody sleeping, he says they're manufacturing Z's or when his like dog Sammy Davis Jr. Jr. is chewing on her tail, she is masticating her tail. Like it's it's all this really and they, I do love the phrase disseminating currency, though. Like, that's the problem is I kind of like them in a vacuum. There, they, yeah, there are some good terms of phrase collectively. And, and there are and the, the stuff about um, manufacturing Z's and, and masticating her tail and stuff. These are stock phrases that he sort of returns to over and over okay, again. Okay. And at that point, it starts to wear a little bit because it's I don't know if it's if. He's really like, oh, here's this running joke about this weird way this person says this thing. Sure. Instead of like, here is an interesting way that a non-native English speaker might slightly misinterpret or misuse a word to say something in an interesting way. Okay. Um, All right. I I get it. I'm 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 interested to hear where the story if. Like what else he's doing that might be similar to that? Because well, it so, sounds like that's kind of the stuff he's interested in. So, yeah, like one of the critic, one of the criticisms I read of of his writing, and it may have been in that in that article about fifteen most overrated writers or whatever, <laughs> is that his books often seem to employ like a central gimmick or gimmicks. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, it's the it's the pigeon English and the magical realism. And and everything is illuminated. Like I think it ends with a flip book, and there's all kinds of other. You stuff mean uh, that's extremely going... loud? Oh yeah, loud. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, extremely loud. Yeah, everything's yeah, illuminated. Okay. Is the one that I read. Yeah, that's true. Um, and and I I have to say, like for me personally, some of that stuff I love, and some of that stuff I hate, just purely based on whatever book I'm like it is. Like it's kind of case by case for me. Yeah, like I'm I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a hard time conveying exactly what bothers me about some of this except that i just i don't like when somebody is obviously turning over a shoulder and and telling you hey look what i did which is what Mm. he's doing for big swaths of this book okay um so for this for the story that follows alex alex and his grandfather get in this car and they drive to pick up jonathan saffron four and they're going to drive him to where this town used to be and like find out what he can find out about what happened there. Okay. Um. So they pick up Jonathan Saffron Four, who seems like a ding dong. He seems like a a grade A dingus. Sure. Even in this book that he himself is writing, so maybe there is like some kind of self awareness about how a a like privileged American might come off to these people or something like that. That jives um, with the persona he puts on in interviews. So yeah. he. He he is like noticeably self-deprecating and self-effacing, like probably to a fault. But yeah, and he, and he's being all like weird around the dog, and obviously, sort of not marveling, but recoiling slightly from these backwards European people who have come to pick him up, and and like he's a vegetarian, of course, and he refuses to eat meat even though nobody knows what a vegetarian is in Ukraine, at least in, in this version of Ukraine. Okay. Um and every Ukrainian hates English speakers and it's all very hostile to him. And that's that's one of the one of the points that um that this there's a criticism, it's particularly of the movie, but the movie and the book are pretty closely like intertwined in in subject matter and the 
It's uh, from the Prague Post magazine, and it's called Not Everything is Illuminated. <laughs> and oh, not no. is in all caps, which is great. Okay. Um, but he talks about like the inauthenticity. The inauthenticity of the Ukrainians in this in this book and how like people English speaking people who read this book are going to come away being like, oh, look at the look at the backwards people in their weird cars with their their eating potatoes off the floor and whatever. Um, Not great. Not a great look. Anyway, let's get to the stuff that's good. So this this story is them driving and they find like they they talk to a bunch of people they can't find anybody who will help them everybody seems to be kind of dismissing them out of hand and they drive and drive and um they find this house with this old woman living in it and they think that she's a woman in a picture that Jonathan has got and Jonathan is referred to as the hero by Alex like mm. in a way that i think plays into the self-deprecating sure sure thing i guess um and she takes them in and talks to them a little bit and she it turns out that she is like the last like they are near where this town used to be and she is one of the last people who used to live in this town who's kind of still around in the area okay um and so they they talk for a little while about about what happened and then it becomes clear that she and alex's grandfather who's also named alex is um they're like having some sort of moment where he is getting very emotionally riled up for like no no reason that anybody can really discern. And they have this long private conversation. And as the story goes on, it's gradually revealed that maybe Alex's grandfather has a closer like proximity to events than he is like letting on. And he's, and he's very like pretty, dismissive and sort of nasty to Alex for a lot of the a lot of the story but as he gets like closer to this area where it turns out that he used to live he is his like guard is going down a little bit more and he's thinking and talking about things that he doesn't usually think and talk about um and it turns out that he lived in this other nearby town um called Kolki it's like K O L K I and a lot of okay. these a lot of these towns have different like Slightly different names and pronunciations and spellings based on like what language you're reading them in. How so, you're, tra- yeah. How so you're like I'm just it. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> well, you um, know, hence the disseminating currency and manufacturing Z's. Sure. Okay. So there, there's a picture that this woman, who's like the last survivor of this town, shows them, and it has somebody who looks just like young Alex, and it turns out that it's his grandfather, Ooh. and they're standing next to um this like. Alex's father and who is a baby (laughs) just standing next to a baby. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's the grandfather, but young and then his wife and then Alex's dad. And then next to them is this guy named Herschel who was, um, was the grandfather, Alex's best friend. Okay. Back in the, back in the day. Sure. And so the Nazis come to town to Kolke and they get they drag everybody out and they line them up and they start throw they they start with like who's the who's the rabbi and they throw him in the synagogue and then they start saying okay who are the jews and nobody steps forward and then they say we are going to go down the line and ask everybody to point to a jew and if you won't point to a jew we'll just throw you in the synagogue uh, and they're going to you know they they are going to do this and they're going to burn it down they're going to kill everybody inside because hey nazis nazis are bad 
in case yeah. you are forgetting. In case you have any reason to doubt. Um, and so they get to the point where all the Jews except for Herschel have been thrown into the synagogue. And, and Herschel keeps to himself and he's pretty private. And really, um, Alex is the only, like grandfather Alex is the only one who knows that he's Jewish, but they're still telling people, you know, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. If you don't like tell us who the Jews are, they don't like believe that, or they're just trying to make sure that everybody is, is flushed out, I guess. And, um, Alex looks at his, his wife and his like baby son. And he is like, I, I need like a son is like a father is always responsible for his son, no matter what. And he, so he like, points to his best friend who gets dragged away into the synagogue and okay and all gets burned down. Yeah. And there are, so when you talk about four kind of using tricks that have been used elsewhere before in this, in this sequence where um, Alex's grandfather is telling him about this, you reach a point where you stop getting punctuation and okay. you start getting like uneven spacing between words and like sometimes things are capitalized or italicized and it's and it's it's a way it's a trick employed to drag the eye along and make a scene read faster as it gets more intense. Okay. And it okay. is it is employed well here. So I will say like it's not as though Four doesn't know what he's about, you know? Like it's yeah. like when he uses yeah, sure. when he uses these kinds of tricks, like he knows how to use them. It's just sometimes the, the effort and the, the, um, the obviousness is a little more like, is a little more at the forefront, I guess. Like sometimes you can, you can sense that he knows that you know what he's doing. And this is not one of those times, but there are other times where that's not true. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I catch myself as someone who ostensibly makes art occasionally or attempts to, um, or tell self-deprecating stories, over here. Tell stories Our using, hero. An art, using an artistic medium. Uh, I don't want to begrudge people using tried and true tools or like tools that have been a- effective in the past. No, like tropes and, and conventions are tropes and conventions because like, they worked out and like yes. they can still be used effectively, especially if you're if you're putting your own spin on them. And I don't I don't know that he's necessarily doing that here, but just like the and this is something else we i want to talk about a little bit before we close but like the power of the central story here which of course is the holocaust yeah gives this some weight that maybe it wouldn't have if it was just like somebody killing their wife or 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 some kind of yeah yeah intro to fiction writing seminar yeah (laughs) yeah the betrayal is different Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. well and when you're talking about that type of typographical stuff i know I've read folks who've been like, yo, people were doing that a century ago. Sure, and that's, sure. Uh, but also, like, montage is an effective cinematic technique that can be done poorly and be overdone and can also be done with great effect. Um, well, and what, so, the, yeah. other, the other thing that helps him here is that, and, and this is getting lost a little bit in my in my summary but this part of the story is getting told to you all you know alternating chapters with the magical realism in the past stuff and so the slow burn and then the reveal is part of why it works 
Sure. Okay. As it's, well it, as it, as well as it does. So like, like by the time pacing and structurally it works. It yeah. Is very, it right. Works like to the, to the point where it is obviously the emotional climax of the book, even though there's another like literally a climax, I guess that happens after <laughs> it in the magical realism world. Okay. Should at this point in time, should we jump to the other book that is inside of this book and what's going on there? Is there any more you want to do in the in this uh, Alex and Alex and his friends plotline? No, I think I think I've I've hit on the stuff that makes this successful. Like like I once you get into it and once it gets a little less forced, I think the simple English thing is more effective. I think the slow burn is effective. And it sounds um, like it's it's an intimate enough story given the backdrop, which yes, usually kind of yeah. helps. Okay, and it, and it does, and and the deprecation of like the fact that Jonathan Zaffron IV becomes an almost completely unimportant tertiary character in what is supposed to be his story <laughs> does actually work in the okay. book's favor in this point. At okay. This point. So uh, like that's just like an interesting thing to do is he is a catalyst for something that ends up having like like he is he is related tangentially but it doesn't end up having a whole lot to do with him. Okay. But you want to talk about the other part of the book that I think you didn't like as much. So what is this part of the book and and unsell me on it or whatever you're going to do here. So here's what happens, I guess, is we're back in track and broad or, or however you pronounce it. Okay. Um, and it's like 1791 or something. It's pretty close to when the town was named. Oh, um, wow. And it's, okay. it's a primarily Jewish settlement. How did we get here? I mean, how do we get here? Like, how does the novel take us here? Like, boom, here we are. Oh, like there's no pretense to it? Not really like like you're the way it's framed is that you are reading parts of a novel that book Jonathan is sending to Alex. Oh, okay. All right, cool. I've, I sorry, I I not made that connection. Okay, great. Yeah. So um So what happens Okay, so what happens first is like some wagon goes off of a bridge and it lands in a river. And like all this debris from this wagon starts coming up, and then pulled out of this river is a baby, Moses. No, his name is Broad or Brud or B R B R O D, and it's ostensibly one of the things that the well, it's it's named after the river, I guess, that they pulled her out of. Okay. And she grows up, and she's like she's raised by somebody who's not her father, and she is like the the great grandmother or great great grandmother or she's she is related to Jonathan Safford for but she's like way back and like she grows up and she has this husband who works in a flour mill and a like a a gear or a blade or something fly flies out of the machinery and like lands in the middle of his head and he has that blade there till the end of his days and it like it makes him beat his wife and but sometimes he's nice to her and she can't love anybody because she's she because i don't know she's like emotionally removed from everything somehow and they have sex with each other through a hole in the wall and that's how they conceive the next person in the in the genetic line and then he gets like he is born with teeth and so his mother (laughs) or like it's not him it's like 
a couple generations down from here, a baby is born named Saffron is born with teeth. And because the baby is born with teeth, his mother doesn't nurse him enough. And because his mother doesn't nurse him enough, one of his arms is just kind of like nerveless and dead and he can't feel anything in it. Okay. And because he has an arm that he can't, that's nerveless and can't feel anything in it, everybody, all the widows and virgins in town want to jump his bones. And so he just has sex with everybody, but not to completion with anybody until, and, and he's just like having sex with everybody. <laughs> He has a lot of sex with everybody. Everyone's he, sex is illuminated. And then he marries, Um, I guess this would be Book Jonathan's great grandmother. And he like has sex with her sister like right before the ceremony. And I don't know. He doesn't like he loves, but he loves yet another party. And then he and his new wife are having sex on their wedding night. And then the Germans start dropping bombs on a far off village. And when the bombs drop, he has his first orgasm ever. So there's like some obvious metaphors for you. My yikes face doesn't translate well to audio, but yikes. I'm alighting over a few things, but like this is. (laughs) I just need to. (laughs) I wanted to stop you at some point and just ask like how. Like a, and okay, here's another thing: is that the the guy who has the gear embedded in his forehead when he dies, they bronze him, and everybody's always rubbing him for good luck, and they have to like rebronze him all the time. And then the saffron with the dead arm, who's having sex with everybody all the time, goes, and they like have a conversation, and it's <sighs> okay. Here, I'm so two, I have two questions. Okay. I have two questions. Right. Maybe. You might not be able to answer them. We'll find out. One, how well drawn are any of these characters? Because it sounds like the characters in the other timeline have some like good hooks and some depth. And my second question, parts of this story seem to frustrate you yet they sound plausible in other books that I know you've liked more. What? I, can, I can answer both of these, I think. Okay, okay. So, for the first que- question... A question mark. I didn't... For, for, <laughs> it's more of a statement than a question. <laughs> but as, for your first question, I think the book like lampshades things a little bit because you mm. get these weird magical realism chapters and then you get a letter from Alex that's like, why can't you let, like, you're not writing something that really happened. Why can't you let the characters love each other? Or like, what's like, why does everybody want to have sex with this guy just because he has a dead arm? Like, what's the, what's the deal with all the so, stuff that you're sending me? So your problems with it are also problems expressed by a character in the book, in which case, why did you do Yeah, like, that? Alex gets upset about it to some okay. extent. And, like, I okay. don't know if we're supposed to see him as as uncultured or something. He doesn't, like, see what Jonathan Saffron 4 is doing in his genius novel about magical realism. Or is it the opposite, where he is embarked on a genius novel about magical realism, and yet his truer goal is to point out how much of a doofus he is? I don't know, man. That seems like a lot of work. We're so deep in this thing. 
Okay. Are you still answering the first question? Or do you want to move on to the second question? I, I, well, okay. So first I'll, I'll read you some magical realism stuff. Which we most recently covered when you did um, 100 Years of Solitude. Yeah, which I actually, I want to compare this to that. Explicitly. Okay, great. Um, this, this is a sequence toward the end where Saffron is, like, he is with his wife who is very pregnant. And he is, like, he, my grandfather put his ear against her belly and received a powerful knock to the head, lifting him off the ground, landing him on his back a few feet away. That child is extraordinary. Magical realism is here, everybody. Hmm. Like a baby in a, in a womb couldn't kick somebody so hard that they flew back unless okay. the baby is Vin Diesel or maybe <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But wait, can I just say real quick mm-hmm. that I would believe you if you told me that either of those men were born and had full sets of teeth when they were born. I would believe I would that. Believe you. I would watch Jim Henson's Fast and the Furious Babies. <gasps> <laughs> that's perfect it's pretty good um so let's go to garcia marquez our good friend gabo okay gabo he we when we read that book we read about where he's coming from when he is writing magical realism is he is the, it goes back to a way that his grandmother used to tell stories where the real and the surreal were mixed together. And she told these stories with exactly the same face, like in exactly the same way. She did not separate the two and it's left to you, the reader or listener to distinguish between the two and to, and and to make that distinction on your own. Would you, would you agree with me in that, in that definition? Sure. So Garcia Marquez is is coming from a space where he is trying to to like recreate something or he's like the like magical realism is not like a a thing that he thought about when he sat down to write that book. He is like here is an example of how stories were told to me in my life that I would like to like capture and get down on paper and to use to tell sure. this wider story about like generations of this family living in this town. Okay, sure. Jonathan Safran Four has sat down and he says, I want to write a magical realism book. Okay. And that's okay. basically my complaint about it. Is sure. it so I don't like it it's so by the numbers like people I don't like there was an onion headline a couple weeks ago or something where like it was about a like somebody some magical realism character was like they were worried about her like flooding the earth with her tears or some dumb thing like it's it's such a paint by numbers example of the genre like he went to wikipedia and read what a magical realism book was like what hallmarks of the genre were and he just wrote that okay okay i i want to make sure that that's what you're saying and not that magical realism is not like no i'm not no people can do magical realism really well if i'm thinking the whole time that i'm reading a magical realism book maybe that's not as successful or interesting you're doing a cool dance right now that i appreciate just emphasizing the words i'm saying (laughs) 
with your shoulders as you dance. Um, yeah, no, I buy that. I I, I hear that, and because I, I that gets to and like similarly and, and, and in, in Garcia Marquez, and not to interrupt you, but in Garcia Marquez, but to I think, interrupt me, but, but yes. to interrupt you, in Garcia Marquez, like he's he is using that, like it's the way the story is told ties in with the story and like helps make it work. Okay. Whereas with this, I feel like the story that's being told and the genre are like a little separate, sort of unrelated almost like you don't okay. need to tell the story in this way. It's just that he has chosen to write a book in this genre. And so that's what we get. Well, and what does confuse me is that thing you mentioned earlier about a character in this book going that feels weird why did you write it that way Mm -hmm. like that seems odd why that hmm that seems like an extra layer of work you just put in to protect yourself you know yeah and 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 you know and forgive me i guess if i'm if i'm misrepresenting the way that the book is commenting on itself but like that it just it just frustrated me so much and then i read stuff about how he's portraying ukrainians in this book and he's you know for is writing in this book you know some of the things the ukrainians did were almost as bad as what the nazis did hmm and then you know i'm i'm going back to this not everything is illuminated article and they're like well actually like a lot of ukrainians died trying to protect people yeah and like you yeah you do get sympathizers and and one of the and again one of the reasons why the the alex sections are more effective is because you get lines like from his grandfather saying i'm i'm not a bad person i'm just i was just like a good person living in a bad time and you don't have to agree with that but yeah it is at least an interesting way to look at or to consider people who I guess like are complicit, but don't actually get who don't actually do the killing themselves. And then, and then, and watching Alex's grandfather, like come to terms with the fact that like he says, I killed Herschel a bunch of times. And then finally he says, or like, at least I as good as killed him. Yeah. Can I draw some connective tissue to some of the dialogue going on right now around the handmaid's tale? Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll stop talking for a second. Well, just because that's a book that we read for the show. And I, I, Folks can go back and listen to that episode. I think we did an okay job. Um, I don't know what we'd say differently reading it now. I'm sure we'd say some stuff differently. But it's, what's interesting, given the TV show that's coming out and a lot of folks going back to that book in the last several months, um, is finding a character whose primary goal is survival. And yes, terrible things are happening to her in the events of that book. But the book or the larger discussion around it is partially about identifying where and when anybody in that situation was complicit in any part of the process of that world changing and bad things happening to people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that story does a particularly good job of putting everyone on the hook for a bunch of different things um, and putting the right people on the, the worst hooks. But um that's not the right way to phrase that, but you know it's, what I it's mean. It's fine. Um, Just disseminate it, your currency over there. <laughs> uh, but to your point, it the the more interesting choice is to is to paint a grayer picture, usually, um, and yeah. and find a find a human 
at the heart of a thing and then also kind of engage in dialogue in what was who made good choices who made bad choices and who made a bunch of choices well and like and like what a good or a bad choice yeah is yeah yeah in in Um, any sort of like big systemic problem yeah and and of of course by the time you get to this by the time you get to a holocaust book in 2002 none of these conversations are new that's none Mm -hmm. of this has not been done before that's true that's very true but the successful sections of this book at least come at it from an interesting perspective and there are occasionally interesting things that he does in the magical realism sections but i feel like those are drowned out by some of the other stuff like there's a bit where saffron and one of the women who he's who he's with are like writing letters to each other but they're like cutting them out of newspaper clippings okay and for tells you like he tells you the sentence that's been cobbled together and then he tells you all the headlines that those letters were cobbled out of and it's all about like the nazis progressing across europe and like that that i thought was an interesting bit of like trickery so there there is cool okay through all this i can see why he got some acclaim i can I was, that was see my next why question. People yeah. think mm-hmm. he's overrated. Like I, I <laughs> almost maybe, for the same reason. I'm saying that second bit. I think with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Um. And I also would be, and maybe Diaz does some of that. I, I would be interested to read a um, another modern example of somebody working in the in the magical realism genre, like something that I. I need to read more so I can define better what I think is successful and not successful about people who set out to deliberately do that. Yeah. I, because uh, right now I'm articulating it poorly. Like it's a, it's a, it's just a thing in this case where I can see the seam showing and I don't like it, but like, I can't, I can't describe it better than that, which I think yeah. is, is probably going to be dissatisfying to some people. And but. I read, I, I read shadow shaper for the show and I know that, Older's work shares a lot of, you know, has a lot of magical realism elements to it, but is also doing some urban fantasy things, which is separate. So that's not a good analog. I I don't know that I have a good, uh, like recent example of anything I've read for the show either. So we'll see what happens when I come around to Oscar. Wow, I don't know if that book traffics in some of this stuff or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll find out. But I I it sounds like the same things that might garner this gar- have garnered this book a bunch of acclaim have also garnered it a bunch of critique like it well, it's, it doesn't sound like it's like here are the good parts and here are the bad parts it's it it does feel in a way that he has a couple tricks that he decided to employ for this book and they work in some places and not in others, but they're well, the same tricks. And here's and here's the I guess the last thing I wanna I wanna hit before we close is yeah. As I was reading this, like I do, I don't know how you do it, but I I do all of my author and book research after I'm done with the book. Like I just don't usually want to know I, that stuff as I'm reading. I I definitely don't look up anything about the book while I'm reading. If I know the author, I might look up a little bit. But it it had been long enough since we'd done Krauss and since I had read anything about the the mentioned Jonathan Safran for. Because, again, as we'd stress a lot, like even though I think this episode has been particularly heavy on allusions to other books, we are not like experts or scholars. We don't usually do this, no. Um, 
when I realized that he was also the author of Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which got a lot of criticism for being, for almost cashing in on the 9-11 novel, like, like maybe not cashing in, but like, but using that and being a little emotionally manipulative with that. Mm-hmm. Like knowing that he also was the author of that sort of crystallized a couple of the things that I was vaguely feeling about this book is something that writers can do to make their works pack a more potent, like emotional and narrative punch is they can use a real world effect and like play on what the audience already like a real world event. I mean, and, um, and take what the reader already knows and feels about that event and use it as a sort of narrative shortcut to get to emotional payoff. So you take, yes. And, and so as the descendant of Holocaust survivors, as a New Yorker, even though I looked, I couldn't find when for had had moved to New York. I know he's an NYU prof now, but he was born in DC. He graduated from Princeton. Like, I'm not sure if it, during 9-11 he actually lived in new york but in any case he does have some claim to these stories like he does have potentially some interesting um if not firsthand then at least like close secondhand links with these stories that he is telling but also like he wrote his first novel about the holocaust and his second novel about 9-11 sure and there's something about that that feels I'm not exploitative is definitely not the word, but it feels like he is trying to say, look at me, like writing about writing these books about these important things. I must, by extension, be an important writer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do see that. I, I see those as as the pitfalls of his work, though. I also and you you did mention this like. I also see, and having recently been a dude in his 20s with personal connections to these events, trying to, and and with aspirations of being an author, this is what's on my mind, this is what I'm going to write about. Right, and like, well, well let, me, let me give you one last example of something that I, I read, and it, and it sort of backed up my thought that he he sees himself as like making grand statements on something important is he is this is in the magical realism sections which like fades in and out of some other stuff and like is not is a little it's vaguely forward moving in time but it also jumps back and forth a lot but he's basically recounting the entries in this like basically village almanac of this of this town okay and it it goes through and it has a bunch of definitions that we see. And one of the definitions is of art mm-hmm. and it defines art as uh, art is the thing having to do only with itself. The product of a successful attempt to make a work of art. Unfortunately, there are no examples of art nor good reasons to think that it will ever exist. Everything that has been made, made with a purpose. Wait, everything that has been made has been made with a purpose. Everything with an end that exists outside that thing, i.e. I want to sell this or I want to, this to make me famous and loved, or I want this to make me whole or worse. I want this to make others whole. And yet we continue to write, paint, sculpt and compose. Is this foolish of us? And then it defines 
Ifis. Ifis is that thing with purpose created for function's sake and having to do with the world. Everything is in some way an example of Ifis. Ifact. An ifact is a past tense fact. For example, many believe that after the destruction of the first temple, God's existence became an ifact. Artifice. Artifice is that thing that was art in its conception and ifis in its execution. Look around. Examples are everywhere. Artifact. An artifact is the product of a successful attempt to make a purposeless, useless, beautiful thing out of a past tense fact. It can never be art and it can never be fact. Jews are artifacts of Eden. And it's hmm. like... Okay... I guess you're making a sort of contrived grand statement about what art is now. Yeah. Like, that's okay. A, okay. And that he passed... does, and he does that a little bit with, with like novels and writing. Like there are a couple different offhand comments that are like, here is, here is the artist laying bare the art that he's ostensibly creating. And, and what does it say about the nature of art? And, and I, I'm not saying that these statements aren't worth trying to make. I'm just saying like, dude, can you like not set off the fireworks that spell out the word art? Like, could you be like a little bit more subtle than that? Maybe. Yeah. What's frustrating to me hearing that passage is that like they're moment to moment, it's like there are chords in a song I like, and there are there are chords that I don't like. Like it's like there are chords, but one of the strings is out of tune, and some of the chords don't use that string, and then some of the chords do. And you just keep hearing that sour note through there that like makes you think of the, not the not artific- of the not broken of guitar, right? Yeah. Not of music, but of the guitar making the music, and it draws okay. attention to the guitar. And you're like, man, will somebody please fix that guitar? <laughs> So I can enjoy the song. I like our contrived metaphor. Thanks for jumping. It on just it keeps me, yes. And is a method that comedians use. The... <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew, we made it. You read the book. We did. Like, I'm. It's so frustrating because I. Whenever we would we do a, a show that's critical, and especially when we come out swinging critical. I think yeah. we disappoint people and I hate to, like I hate to do that and I definitely hate to um yuck anybody's yum I guess like I I don't want sure. to make any fans of four feel bad because like I didn't like his thing but like that's you want to talk about art like that's the nature of art is it's subjective and I as the consumer of it can feel whatever <laughs> I want about it can so I ask, get off uh, my butt <laughs> Can I ask a quick question Sure Imagine, if you will, you are the direct descendant of Holocaust survivors. Do you think that there are things in this book that might speak to you differently, perhaps be more potent? And I know you, Andrew, on this show have pointed out ways in which four might be taking advantage of that connection um, as as an author. But do you? Th- I wonder if there are folks who have responded to this book in a different way because of that connection. Yeah, I don't know. Like I I don't I don't think that you need to have a direct connection to feel what this book wants you to feel. Okay. And and for four, like he does say some things about like memories and the jewish people um so he there this is an entry called jews have six senses uh touch taste sight smell hearing and memory 
While Gentiles mm. experience and process the world through the traditional senses and use memory only as a second order means of interpreting events, for Jews, memory is no less primary than the prick of a pin or its silver glimmer or the taste of the blood it pulls from the finger. The Jew is pricked by a pin and remembers other pins. It is only by tracing the pinprick back to the other pinpricks. When his mother tried to fix his sleeve while his arm was still in it, when his grandfather's fingers fell asleep from stroking his great-grandfather's damp forehead, when Abraham tested the knife point to be sure Isaac would mm. feel no pain, that the Jew is able to know why it hurts. When a Jew encounters a pin, he asks, what does it remember like? Hmm. And I think I like that passage. Okay. That gets to how the, like the Jewish experience of this would maybe be different from mine is like you come into this with maybe a deeper and fuller understanding of not just the Holocaust, but like all the suffering that Jews have, have, yeah have experienced and like continue to experience like to this day and mileage um, may vary depending on your own connections to your faith and background but yeah like like to, so so to some extent like four is getting stories secondhand the way that all of us get holocaust stories yeah, secondhand yeah. and i think there is a universality to that and i don't think that you need to be particularly close to i think get most of the points that he is making but at the same time yeah like i am not gonna sit here and say i know how a survivor or a relative of survivors is going to, is going to react to this. I would say that if you are looking for art or literature on this, I would start with like diary of Anne Frank or mouse and like, Mm. and look other older places. Don't go to the story of someone figuring it out second and third hand first. Not, I'm not, and I'm not trying to devalue what four is doing. And I'm not like, I'm not trying to devalue what any of our Jewish listeners who might've read this book and had it really resonate with them. Cause like maybe it's the first piece of art they encountered that grapple with this stuff, or maybe it's just the kind that resonated with them the most because four is more of their generation and maybe he's more writing to them. But yeah, but like you can just, also not like parts of the book. That's okay. Yeah. Like I, I just <laughs> like, and, and like, like we said, I just, I, I think that four is a talented writer who just is not writing things that other people have not already done and and again not to say that that is wholly without that that newness is the only thing that makes art worthwhile but like i don't know like i think you i think you need to you need to leave your own stamp on stuff and sometimes i wonder what four's stamp actually looks like you know well that's an interesting irony i know we need to close out but that's an interesting irony given the fact that both this book uh, I don't know much about Here I Am, but both this book and Ext- Extremely Loud, from what I've read about it, both seem to be in conversation with a historical event, in conversation with a historical character. Uh, and yet what you just said is, again, this critique of four that comes around and around again, is that he does not, as an author, seem to be in conversation with the the works that have come before him. He's not in conversation with the conversation. Yes, he's having his own conversation and going, look at how cool this conversation is. Yeah, and, and again, like, <laughs> I think we zeroed in on a lot of the other criticism that's that's been written up for, and I, again, I did not read anything about him before I read the book, and so the reason I bring all this up is that a lot of it, like most to all of it, tracks with what, you what I was thinking. Sure. And Which just is cool. Like, yeah, and I'm, okay. Yeah, I don't know. 
Well, so that that's where I am, and I and I do apologize apologize if I was overly harsh, but like we can't like all of them. That's right. That's <laughs> what I say every day when I get up in the morning. Can't like all of them. Can't like them all. Um, if you would uh, like to reach out to us and tell us if you liked this book, if you didn't like this if book, we or... illuminated everything or nothing <laughs> yeah. for you. Like... <laughs> you can uh, use our social media feeds. That's twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. Uh, we got a lot of folks who uh, responded in the past week because we released our reading list for May. We also like just randomly dropped an episode on skateboard tough which you should go listen to if you haven't already so <laughs> thanks a, to lucas listen yeah oh god uh thanks to lucas hannah starfish chick katie megan charlotte sophie meg adam rebecca melissa glenn sean josh Catherine, leanne bovin kelly ryan caitlin graham bethany grace taylor jess liz mickey charlotte heather gloria tim jennifer elise erica christina lisa joe omar leslie elizabeth sydney danielle tara Rian, michael that's a lot of folks uh, who were vocal this past week thank you so much it makes it brightens our day it makes us feel good you mm-hmm. can also write us emails at overduepod at gmail.com we read all those and we are very behind in answering them andrew if folks want to know more about the show where should they go they should go to overduepodcast.com where we have links to itunes stitcher rss and google play those are all services you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop usually that's every monday when we have bonuses it's every whenever <laughs> Correct, Mundo. Um, if you do subscribe on iTunes, rate and review us. It makes us feel good and it helps us rise up in them charts and helps new people find the show. And uh, that's how we keep growing and, and growth is how we keep going. So, yo, hey. <laughs> um, we have links to Spreaker, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. Thanks as always to both of them for helping make the show possible. Um, we've got Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We posted May's schedule up uh, on the site and on Facebook. What was it like a couple days I just ago? Upda- I updated the site today, so all those okay. books are there. Do you want to go? Just do you have the list to hand? Do you just want to go down? Oh, it? let me go down it. Okay, oh, while boy. you pull it up. Um, also, we have a link to our Patreon project, which is a way you can uh, financially support the show. We did just pass. Our uh, $500 stretch goal, so we're going to be putting on a live show at some point. I think at this at this juncture, tentatively, we can say we're going to be doing Boston this summer. Yeah, so um, we... so we're we are researching like dates and venues and things, and we're and we're going to figure that out. Um, we've got a lot of requests for different cities. If we're not like coming to your neck of the woods now, like rest assured that we would like to later. So you know, keep keep asking, and and, and we will we will keep it in mind. So the fun thing about our Patreon project again, you can recommend books for us to read. You can also we are doing our bonus episode for May which is a book called Felide. We're doing a live stream recording of it for some of our donors. So go to patreon.com slash pod to find out how you can join us. The rest of our schedule for the month of May, uh, this week, you listen to Everything is Illuminated. Uh, Next week... Good job. I'm going to be reading from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Then we're talking about uh, The Brief Wonders Life of Oscar Wow. Then we're doing Choose Your Own Adventure, You Are a Shark. Uh, and then <laughs> while Andrew's away, uh, my wife Laura's going to be on. We're going to be talking about March by Geraldine Brooks, which You're is doing I understand it in May. It. Yeah, weird. Uh, it's All a right. retelling of Little Women from a different perspective. So if you haven't 
heard of that book before, which I had not. Um, that's what's going on with that book. And I'm, Laura is very excited. So I think it'll be fun. Yeah, cool. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, if you have, again, if you have any thoughts, just like don't, don't hesitate to contact us. We love hearing from you and engaging with you. Um, and uh, until next week, uh, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.